opened the Gospel of John together and started to work our way through this New Testament book. During the month of December, we took a short break and walked through a a study that we entitled Down to Earth, where we examined some of the finer and and more important elements of the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so now you may be wondering that I've directed you to Luke chapter 9, what in the world is going on? Well, before we return now to John's gospel, I want to walk you through another uh, short study. This time it would be in the neighborhood of three months that we have entitled Follow Me, The Adventure of Discipleship. And this series will take us right up to Easter. And when we come back together to worship on Easter Sunday, we will return our attention to the Gospel of John and then move on to the beginning of the summer. And by that point, Lord willing, we will complete our study in the Gospel of John. I want to begin this morning by uh, rehearsing with you the mission of Christ Fellowship. And indeed, this is where this series had its origin, where it had its, where the idea uh, came about. And that is, I began to think through the mission of Christ Fellowship, which is stated that we help people become fully devoted followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I became convicted as your pastor, that we have this this massive mission statement before us, but we have really never wrestled together with the important implications of discipleship in a systematic way, in a biblical way, in a, in a, a logical and organized way. We have never really grabbed the bull by the horns, if you will, and and looked at the details of our mission. We are not only here, we not only exist to develop people, to help them become fully devoted followers of Christ. I want to also rehearse the vision with you. And the vision of Christ Fellowship is simply this, that we are called to be a high commitment, high grace family of Christ followers who strive to live gospel-driven and God-centered lives. Equipped to reach our community and the nations with the saving message of the gospel. We've highlighted those very important words for you that at the, at the very core of our vision is we are called to be people who are high commitment people. That is, we say what we mean and we mean what we say. That is, when we sign up, we carry it through completion. That is when we decide to come to a class and we decide to go to Ironman, when we decide to plug in, we say, man, I'm going to do this thing. That is that we, we become members of Christ Fellowship and say we come together in covenant community, that we make commitments not only to God, we commit, we come into covenant with one another. Additionally, we are a high grace people. That is to say, life is busy, things come up, sometimes... We have to balance that high commitment with high grace. I can't tell you the number of times I've had discussions with men and iron men who want to be there, but they can't be there. 
And this is a perfect illustration of the high commitment, high grace culture that we want to foster at Christ Fellowship. If we were only a high commitment church, when a man came to me and said, I want to be there, but I can't be there, I'd say, hey, listen, buddy, if you can't come every time, then forget it. That is not the kind of church that we want to be. We want to be a kind of church that when when a gentleman comes up and says, Pastor, I want to be there, but my job prohibits me from coming. A high grace mentality says, man, we are just glad anytime you can come. That's the blending of high commitment and high grace. We also desire to be a, a gospel-driven community that every class, every sermon, every, every uh, time we gather together, whether it's, it's even to get together to eat, that we would be a gospel-driven people, that the gospel would be the, the first thing that comes out of our mouths, that we would also be a God-centered people, that we would strive to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ in everything we do. As 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 10 says, whatever we do, whether we eat or drink, we do all for the glory of God. And then finally, that we would be an equipped people. As my family went to Anaheim for Christmas vacation, this was the thing I was sharing with Jerry Toon that I became convicted of as I read a line from a, a book I'd read many, many years ago that essentially said, if you're not equipping people for the work of the ministry, you're blowing it. Now, we are equipping people for the work of the ministry. That much is true. But I believe it can get bigger and better and bolder and more intense and more biblical. And so we move forward with that kind of mentality. That is our vision. There is, as you know, a great need for discipleship, not only in our culture, but in our church family. The Lord Jesus Christ invites us in the pages of the New Testament to come to him. He says, come and see. What is he inviting us to? He's inviting us to a discipleship relationship. He is inviting us as the students uh, get ready to go back to the university here in the next day or so. He's inviting us, if you will, to enroll in the school of Christ. That is, he gives us an invitation to, to be his disciples. I want you to look with me at this verse in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 and 29, where Jesus makes this invitation very plain. He says, come to me. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. If we could look at that on the screen. I want to have us just gaze at that for a moment. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. And notice what Jesus says. Here's a promise. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. As we begin this study together, I need to make sure that we are all on the same page, that we realize that apart from Jesus, we are lost. For Jesus clearly describes the condition of every person who is without saving grace. That is, they live, as this verse indicates, with deep burdens. They live with pain. They, they are weary. They are laden with guilt. Specifically, they are burdened by this weight that separates them from a holy God, which places them under his almighty wrath. This is a sermon this morning where I have taken the liberty to engage in an extended introduction. You say, oh no, what's that mean? A longer sermon? Actually, probably a shorter sermon. But in this extended introduction, I want to begin by defining discipleship. You can 
take uh, notice in your notes is there is a broad category that helps us to understand the meaning of the Greek word mathetino. And the Greek word translated disciple is very easy to remember. It simply means this. A disciple is a follower or a pupil. A disciple is a follower or a pupil. And so Jesus invites disciples to learn as they place themselves under his authority. And so by definition, a a person who who signs up, if you will, to become a disciple, is a person who says, I want to be a pupil. I want to be a learner. I love the language of being a lifelong learner, not only educationally, but also in terms of New Testament discipleship. Now, Jesus sets the parameters for discipleship in several passages. But in Matthew chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, he says it like this. He says, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant to be like his master. The late James Montgomery Boyce, former pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, said it like this. Discipleship means forsaking everything to follow Jesus. Discipleship means forsaking everything to follow Jesus. Also, by way of introduction, I want you to look with me for a moment with a problem. And that is a problem that we call the problem of false disciples. And disciples should be in parentheses. There is a problem of false disciples for in the days of the New Testament, as well as today, this day in January 2017, we have people who profess faith, but they fail to possess faith. People who make a profession of faith, but they fail to possess saving faith. They say, I'm a Christian, but they're not Christians. They say, I'm walking with Jesus, but the only days they walk with Jesus are on Sunday. This is an example of a false disciple, a pseudo disciple. This is an imposter, someone who merely gives lip service to Jesus, but in the final analysis, this person rejects the claims of lordship on his or her life. There are some frightening words in Matthew chapter 7, where Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. I remember as a youngster, Hearing that verse preached, hearing that verse taught, and reading that verse for myself, and trembling in fear, afraid that one day I would die, and I would be ready to stand before my Savior in heaven, and the Lord Jesus would say, depart from me, I never knew you. That's the reality of false discipleship. And then, of course, there's an example of a false disciple. He is, and there are many throughout the pages of Scripture, but probably the the textbook case of a false disciple, of course, is Judas. He was a man who was on the inner circle with the Lord Jesus Christ. He ate meals with Jesus. 
He spent time around the campfire with Jesus. He walked with Jesus. He saw Jesus minister to the crowds. He knew Jesus like the other disciples, but he was only a disciple in name. Judas was a a pseudo-disciple. He was a, a false disciple. He was a sham. He was one who made a bold profession of faith, but at the end of the day, he did not possess saving faith. I want you to look with him by way of example for a moment. In the example of Judas, we see a man who who loved the things of the world more than eternal riches. You might say it this way, he wanted his cake and eat it too. He loved the things of the world more than eternal riches. One writer says he wanted glory, he wanted success, he wanted earthly treasures. Second, we see in Judas a man whose life was characterized by deceit. He's a man whose life was characterized by lies. Another writer says that his show of faith was only a masquerade. False disciples are masters of subtle deception. They pretend to love the Lord, but their kisses are kisses of betrayal. There's a song, and providentially, I just listened to it a few days ago. It had nothing to do with preparing for this sermon. And some of you know the song I'm about to utter, uh, the words from one of my all-time favorite bands. How many know what I'm talking about? Judas Kiss by Petra. If you have never heard Judas Kiss, well, I don't know if I recommend you listen to it, because I remember the first time I listened to it, I was like, that is some acid rock right there. Wow. I mean, it starts out with this blistering guitar solo. But at the end of the day, the song is about the man who betrayed the Savior. Are you wondering what it's like for him when he willingly goes astray? So says the lyrics of the song. It must be, it must be just like Judas' kiss. See, his life was characterized by deceit. Finally, when we refer to Judas, we see that he and all false disciples are only in it for what they can receive. They're in it for themselves. One writer says they are satisfied with a salved conscience, peace of mind, and a good reputation or spiritual self-satisfaction. Some of them profess Christ because it's good for business or because they think trusting Christ will bring health, wealth, or prosperity. But they will sell the Savior just as Esau sold his birthright for a message of pottage. Like Judas, they love the world and they love darkness Their half-hearted faith turns inevitably to hard-hearted unbelief. My late grandfather used to say this, never sell your soul for a mess of pottage. And so we're concerned this morning with authentic discipleship. And so you understand correctly, please know that a genuine disciple may falter in his or her faith. My suspicion would be if we went around and asked every genuine follower of Christ. Have you ever faltered in your faith? My suspicion would be that many of you would answer in the affirmative. You would say, yes, there was a season. There was a day, there was a week, there was a month, there was a a short period in my life where I was not obeying Jesus, where I was not walking with Jesus, where the Bible was closed on my desk. In fact, I don't even know where I left my Bible. 
where the Word of God was not preeminent in your life, where the local church family was not preeminent in your life, where prayer was not preeminent in your life, you moved away from a season. And so a genuine disciple may fail Christ, but never turn away from Christ. A genuine follower of Jesus may for a period of time fail Christ, but ultimately he or she will never turn away from Christ. When genuine disciples sin, they confess their sin. They, as I say, oftentimes in biblical counseling, they they run to the cross. When I sin, when you sin as disciples, we run to the cross and we ask forgiveness. And the Bible assures us that we will receive forgiveness for all of our sins. You see, their faith is not terminal. Their faith is ultimately triumphant. There's a second thing I have a concern with. The first is the problem with false disciples. The second is actually a false understanding of discipleship. And I present this to you this morning, once again, by way of introduction. And we will see this throughout our study. There are really two false views that I'm concerned about in these days. One is something that you might have heard referred to as two-tiered discipleship. The notion of two-tiered discipleship. And I have to tell you that I actually hear this all the time. This is an epidemic view that has grown over the years in the church. This is the view that holds that discipleship involves, first of all, believing in Jesus. And second of all, it comes when you, you come to the place in your Christian life where you decide you want to be a disciple. If we could look at the diagram, that might explain it better. There are, in this view, and this is a false view again, some who say there are believers in Christ, and then they decide to take the plunge and become disciples of Christ. There are those who are the, the true disciples, but then there are the others who have just trusted in Christ, but they haven't taken the plunge of discipleship. That's why I refer to this as two-tiered discipleship. And we need to understand that there are two kinds of people in the world, but it's not this. Here are the two kinds of people in the world. And and by way of, of good teaching and preaching, at least I pray it's that, I would have you imagine in your mind, in your mind's eye, ask yourself, If there are two kinds of people, and only two kinds of people, how would you characterize them? And here they are. The first kind of person is a follower of Christ, a Christian, a disciple, a believer. The second kind of person is a person who does not follow Christ, a non-believer. Theologically accurate way to describe that person would be an unregenerate person. An unconverted person. And so on this hand, believers are children of God. They're seated in the heavenlies. All their sins are forgiven. If you're here this morning and you're following Jesus, if you're a disciple, today you can walk away with full assurance that all of your sins have been forgiven. Every sin in the past, every sin that you committed earlier this morning, every sin that you're committing right now, Hopefully none right now. And every sin that you'll commit later today and all your sins in the future are washed away by the blood of Jesus. That's the believer. That's the follower. That's the disciple. That's the regenerate person. On the other hand, there is the non-believer. 
That is the person who is currently under the wrath of Almighty God. This person does not walk with Jesus. This person does not believe savingly in Jesus. This person is on his or her way to hell. And so there are only two kinds of people in the world. And Nathan, if we could get rid of that diagram, because I just don't like it. I don't like it. Believers and unbelievers. If you're a believer, you by definition are a disciple. The second matter that concerns me is one that is a, is a false matter or a false view of discipleship. And that is the notion that you can come to Christ as Savior but reject him as Lord. Now, this actually began to get hot about the middle of the 80s. In 1986, I believe it was, John MacArthur wrote a book that was based on a series of messages that he preached. And the name of the book, some of you have read it, is entitled The Gospel According to Jesus. And this is a book that that created somewhat of a firestorm in the evangelical world and continues to be controversial to this day. And so John MacArthur wrote the gospel according to Jesus. Then he wrote faith works. Then he wrote hard to believe. In just a few months, he has a new book entitled the gospel according to Paul that will be released shortly. And within the pages of these books, Dr. MacArthur argues that it is erroneous. It is false. It is wrong to say, I trust in Christ as Savior, but reject Him as Lord. Some have referred to the biblical view, the view that I promote and teach to you today, as the so-called Lordship salvation view. And whether you call it Lordship or, or salvation or not is not important to me. The fact of the matter is this. If you trust Christ... If you believe in Christ by definition, you submit, you surrender to his lordship. And so these are things that we will continue to unpack as we move through the series in the days ahead. Some of you are familiar with Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a German man who actually put a plan together to assassinate Adolf Hitler during the latter days of World War II. I have, and I should probably not even say this because some of you will hold my feet to the fire and I'll end up having to do it. I've always wanted to teach a class on the ethics of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And it's a great question to think about. Is it legitimate? Is it biblical? Is it okay for a Christ follower to put together a plan to assassinate An evil man like Adolf Hitler. The answer is not an easy yes or no answer. But that's beside the point. This man, this German pastor, was eventually arrested for his role in trying to take out Adolf Hitler. And eight days before Hitler committed suicide, Bonhoeffer was led naked to the gallows. And he was hung for his quote-unquote crime. Against Adolf Hitler. Here's what Bonhoeffer said. He referred to the non-lordship view. The erroneous view as cheap grace. He writes. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. You see Bonhoeffer on this matter. He got it. He understood that, that it was impossible to accept Christ as Savior, but refuse Him or reject Him as Lord. 
And so the question I want to pose to you today as we come together is, is a very simple question. And it's a question I hope every person can answer. Are you a disciple? Are you a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ? If the answer to that question is yes, the implications are astronomical. We begin by saying what we've already mentioned, that if you're a disciple of Jesus, all your sins have been forgiven. And your life is totally, totally transformed. Well, the title of the message this morning is The Essence of Discipleship. This is part one of, Lord willing, two parts to this message where we will set forth in a foundational way the elements, the basic elements of discipleship and then move forward for the next 12 weeks or so as we seek to discover who God has called us to be as his disciples. And so with your Bibles open, I want to have you stand with me and read with me verse 23. Here's what Jesus says as he unpacks a very important element of biblical discipleship. And he said to all, and his brothers and my aunt grew up in, his sister. Some of you will remember when churches would do this. And guys, we, we will never do this. So just brace yourself. I promise it will never happen. Back in the old days, and you probably remember this, what would happen is, is uh, the, the boys would basically say, uh, I'd like to go out with... Susie or, or whoever it might be, right? And they would pair these couples up. And so the girl would get, 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 get together with the guy and she would make a, a sack lunch. And they'd go on a date together. <laughs> this is being recorded. So it's pretty wild. And so my Aunt Betty, she got paired up with this young man. And this was her first date. And so she, and she was really a great cook, right? So she put together the, the lunch and, and, and the, the beverages. And then she decided for dessert she would make a pumpkin pie. Remember, she's going to learn the, the importance of the essence of something. Well, she learned the hard way as this young man ate the lunch and enjoyed it. And then he ate the pie. And my Aunt Betty said to this young man, Hey, what did you think of the pumpkin pie? And the young man looked at her cross-eyed and said, I've tasted better putty. <laughs> Oops. And all the ladies probably already know it. The guys are like, huh? Putty? Like, I love pumpkin pie. And the ladies are going, she didn't put sugar in the pumpkin pie. She included, oh, yeah, are you with me? She, she included all the very important ingredients. And you can put all of the ingredients in the pumpkin pie recipe. Note to the wise, you leave out the sugar, that pumpkin pie is going to taste like putty. And so Aunt Betty learned that the, the sine qua non of pumpkin pie is all the important ingredients, including sugar. So this Latin phrase, sine qua non, really describes the essence of something. It's a phrase that describes, some, describes something that is absolutely essential. It can actually be tra uh, translated as the follow following, without which, not. Without which, not. And so it means that without something, something else will not be possible. Here's an example, and this is for the young people. If you're thinking about becoming a physician, a great example, an extensive grounding in science and mathematics is the sine qua non for a career in the medical field. 
Simply put, if you want to be a doctor and you don't like math or science, forget it. Right? That's the reason I didn't become a doctor. Math, science, horrible. Just horrible. And so that's the importance of uh, the, uh, the essence of something. So we want to ask this morning. What is the sine qua non of discipleship? And I want you to look at it with me in verse 23 because Jesus spells it out in very plain terms. He says there's three indispensable qualities of a disciple. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, number one, and take up his cross daily, number two, and finally let him follow me. I need to say that these are not progressive steps that a person takes in the school of Christ. Rather, these are essential ingredients of discipleship. One writer says it like this. One of the most important things to be said about Christ's stringent definition of discipleship in Luke 9.23 is the elements he mentions cannot be separated from each other or even made progressive steps in the Christian life. What Boyce means is this. You say, I'm a self-denier and I pick up my cross to follow Jesus, but I refuse to follow him. Jesus says, then you will not be my disciple. You leave out one, you leave out the sugar, if you will, and the Christian life tastes like putty. It's impossible at that point to become a disciple. And so look with me at the first very important quality, the the first essential ingredient of biblical discipleship. And Jesus spells it out for us in verse 23, and it's the quality of self-denial. Self-denial. And so we want to ask ourselves, what does it mean when Jesus says, you must deny yourselves in order to become my disciple? First and most important, I need to share with you that self-denial in the Greek text is written as an imperative. What's an imperative? An imperative is a command. Jesus says in so many words, if you want to become my disciple, I command you, deny yourself. Deny yourself. The English word comes from a Greek word that means a verbal renunciation. It means to repudiate. It means to pay no interest to yourself. It also means to deny yourself, which involves a a radical renunciation. Some of you like the New Living Translation. And I like the way the New Living Translation translates this verse which says, if any of you wants to be my follower, he must put aside his selfish ambition. The Phillips paraphrase says, if anyone wants to follow in my footsteps, he must give up all right to himself. It goes something like this. Imagine yourself, you're in the the inner circle with Jesus, and Jesus says, come to me. And deny yourself. You want to be my my disciple? Deny yourself. And I can just hear it in the crowd. Yeah, but, but, but Jesus, you don't understand. And we're going to see that in a few instances. And Jesus says, if you're not willing to deny yourself, farewell. That's the first indispensable quality of a a disciple. That is of self-denial. More importantly, beyond the definition, how do I do it? 
You say, Pastor, I want to be a disciple, or I am a disciple, and I want to make sure that I am a person who is characterized by self-denial. How do I do it? There are at least three important ingredients of this imperative called self-denial. Number one, it involves a radical reordering of priorities. It involves a radical reordering of priorities. It was only several months ago that I read a book about a woman, and some of you have likely seen her on the news. She was the number one call girl in the city of Las Vegas, and she did business all over the world. She was one of the most well-known prostitutes in the world. In fact, she even tells a story. She, she grew up in the church. She had heard the gospel She had parents who helped her to understand the gospel and one step led to another and this young woman began in Minneapolis and ended up in Las Vegas and at one point in her life, her John said to her, you ever betray me, I'll kill you. You ever cross me, I'll kill you. And one day, she did just that and she ended up in the trunk of, Of his car. And as he threw her in the trunk, guess what she saw in the back of the trunk? A shovel. A shovel. And she knew she was dead. And so there she was, and I don't know about you, but being in the back of a trunk with the lid down, that's one of my worst nightmares. Claustrophobia city, right? And she began to sing out loud Amazing Grace with the John outside the car getting ready to kill her. By God's miraculous providence, that evil man outside the car opened the trunk and she escaped. And here's the point of the story. Annie is the woman's name. She came face to face later, not too much later, with the claims of the gospel. And she trusted Jesus Christ and she became a disciple Jesus says in Luke chapter 9, you must deny yourself. If Annie came along and said, Lord Jesus, I will trust you, but you have to understand I'm making a lot of money in the prostitution racket. I'm just going to continue to do this. Jesus' response would be, listen, deny yourself or you cannot be my disciple. And so how do we be people of self-denial? It involves a radical reordering of priorities. Annie Lambert knew what it meant to totally reorganize the priorities in her life. And she did just that. Just that. Instead of being a self-seeker, our priorities then are reoriented around the kingdom of God. Would you hold your finger in Luke chapter 9 and go back with me to the Old Testament book of Isaiah chapter 14. And Isaiah chapter 14 is is certainly not a passage about discipleship, but it does help us to understand what self-denial is not. In Isaiah chapter 14, read with me beginning in verse 12. How you are fallen from heaven. And this describes the fall of Lucifer, who we know as Satan. 
How have you fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn? How are you cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low? You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Here we see the opposite, the exact opposite of what Jesus calls for in a life of biblical discipleship, namely self-denial. I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the high of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. I, I, I. It's the total opposite of what Jesus is calling for in Luke chapter 9. And we know the story of Lucifer. And we know what kind of activity he engages now. We know his final destination. Secondly, being a a man or a woman, being a boy or a girl of self-denial involves sacrifice. It involves sacrifice. Look with me at at, uh, Luke chapter 14, verse 26. And many of these passages we will look at today by way of introduction, and we will come back and examine them in, with greater detail. But for now, look at Luke fourteen twenty six. Jesus says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even, notice, his own life, he cannot be my disciple. In his book, The Gospel According to Jesus, John MacArthur notes, The idea of daily self-denial does not jibe with the contemporary supposition that believing in Jesus is a momentary decision. A true believer is one who signs up for life. The bumper sticker statement or the bumper sticker sentiment, Try Jesus, ever seen that? Is a mentality foreign to real discipleship. You see, we're not called to take Jesus for a test drive. We're called to deny ourselves. MacArthur says, faith is not an experiment, but a lifelong commitment. And so self-denial involves this radical reordering of priorities. It involves sacrifice. And finally, it involves wholehearted obedience. Wholehearted obedience. Look with me at Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 57. A very challenging passage. And I want you to to ask yourself, if Jesus came to me and said, follow me as a disciple, what would my response be? Here's how these men responded. Verse 57. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. To another, he said, follow me. There's the invitation. Come. But he said, Lord, let me first and go, bury, go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord. But let me first say farewell to those who are at my home. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit For the kingdom of God. MacArthur adds, he demanded that people deny themselves completely. He required implicit obedience. He instructed them to be ready to die for him. 
He called them to relinquish all their normal priorities, including family, friends, personal plans, ambitions, and everything else in this world. Their whole lives were explicitly and irrevocably placed under his authority. His lordship was total and non-negotiable. What is the essence of discipleship? This morning we've seen that the first mark of biblical discipleship is found in Luke chapter 9. And it's none other than self-denial. You could say it like this. Self-denial is a sine qua non of discipleship. Self-denial involves this radical reprioritization of our priorities. It involves sacrifice. It involves wholehearted obedience. And here is the, here's the, the part of the nutshell that I want to crack for you this morning. Self-denial is impossible. You're like, great, great. Jesus calls me to self-denial, but now my pastor says, you can't do it. I can't do it. If you're honest with yourself, you will freely admit that Jesus' imperative to deny yourself is absolutely impossible. Why? Because being a a person of self-denial does not come naturally to me. It does not come naturally to you. By nature, we are selfish, self-centered people. Thinking about myself is the, the most easy thing. Thinking about myself is always the most convenient thing. And so in and of yourself, you will never become a person of self-denial. What Jesus commands, you can never do, and here's the key this morning, on your own. You can never do it on your own. You see, self-denial and every other imperative in Scripture is totally dependent on Grace. I read a book almost 20 years ago. Have you ever read a book and something strikes you as so significant that if someone said, go get that book and show me where it's at. You're like, you can go right to the bookshelf, pick it out and turn to page 12. That's what this quote did to me. I read this quote at the the Dwarshack Reservoir. At a week-long high school water ski camp, hint, hint, that I taught at almost 20 years ago. There I was on on the shore watching the students water ski, having a blast, and I read this statement. It is one of the most important sentences I've ever read in my life. John Piper says, Grace is God's giving us sovereign joy in God that triumphs over joy in sin. Grace is God's giving us sovereign joy in God that triumphs over sin. So Jesus calls you and I to be people of self-denial. If you are to be a disciple, he says, here is the sine qua non. Here is a sine qua non of discipleship. Here is an essential ingredient. You must be a person of self-denial, but you can't do it. You need grace. I need grace. You've heard me refer to one of my heroes, a man who was born in 354. He's old. Aurelius Augustine. Augustine was a pagan man. 
He's a man who rebelled against God in his teenage years and his early days as an adult. And I want you to listen how God transformed his heart from a heart that was selfish to a heart that was beating with self-denial. Here's what Augustine said after he was converted. He said, during all those years of rebellion, where was my free will? What was the hidden secret place from which it summoned in a moment so that I might bend my neck to your easy yoke? How sweet all at once it was for me to be rid of all those fruitless joys which I once feared to lose. You drove them from me. He's talking to God. You drove them from me. You who are the true, the sovereign joy. You drove them from me and took their place. You who are sweeter than all pleasure. You who outshine all light, yet are hidden deeper than any secret in our hearts. You who surpass all honor, though not in the eyes of men who see all honor in themselves. O Lord, my God, my light, my wealth, my salvation. Close quote. You see, Augustine understood in and of himself he could never be a person of self-denial. His heart was far too selfish. But he also understood and also experienced sovereign grace. The grace of God that transformed his selfish, petty heart to be a selfless heart. All to the glory of God. So we close this morning. I want you to think about your priorities, not your spouse's priorities, not your children's priorities, not your friend's priorities. I want you to think about your priorities that need to be reordered in 2017 as a disciple of Jesus Christ. What needs to be reordered in your personal life? What needs to be reordered in your career Gentlemen in particular, what needs to be reordered in your thought life? What needs to be reordered on your computer or on your iPad or on your Kindle? What needs to be reordered in your goals? What needs to be totally revolutionized as far as your aspirations are concerned? Secondly, I want to encourage you to think about this matter of sacrifice. Are you willing to make sacrifices in your Christian life. When we were in Los Angeles and while everyone was sleeping, getting ready to go to Disneyland, I, I spent many of those early morning hours reading uh, a biography of J. Hudson Taylor. Here's a guy who studied to become a physician, who ended up the founder of China Inland Mission, who had a passion, who had a passion for the Chinese people. What did he do? He went and he shared the gospel. He, he gave it all up. He gave everything up. He sacrificed all for the great namesake of the Lord Jesus Christ. I would ask, is sacrifice a part of your life? Is sacrifice a part of your life? Finally, what does obedience look like for you in this stage of your Christian journey? Some of you are just getting started in the Christian journey. It's so exciting. Some of you have been walking with Jesus for 30, 40, 50 years or even more. What does obedience look like for you? And pastors are supposed to come along and say, here's some suggestions for obedience. And as I thought about this point, I thought everyone at Christ Fellowship is different. 
Some of you are 12, 17, 21. Some of you are 60, 70, 80, 90. Different goals, different aspirations, different struggles, different sins, different uh, battles you're fighting. And so I would ask that the Holy Spirit would apply this point to your heart. What does obedience look like for me at this stage in my Christian journey? And we've only scratched the surface, obviously, in Luke chapter 9, verse 23. We've looked at the first essential ingredient of biblical discipleship. That first mark of discipleship is none other than self-denial. And next week, we will come together, Lord willing, and look at the next two indispensable qualities of biblical discipleship. I want to close with this question. Are you a disciple? Are you a, a, a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. We say this a lot on this campus at Christ Fellowship. You come to Christ by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Nothing more, nothing less. Are you a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ? Let's pray. Father, I never cease to be amazed at the, the depth of your word. A few short words here in this one verse that... We need time to to labor over, to unpack, to understand, and to apply to our lives. Lord Jesus, thank you for the invitation to come along into your school uh, to be disciples. Lord, I know that many here at Christ Fellowship have already taken that plunge. They've already accepted that challenge. They have enrolled in the school of Christ. And I pray, God, that you would teach us as disciples that in the days ahead as uh, fellow disciples, we would learn what it truly means to be a people who are committed to this important ingredient of self-denial. That next week, as we look what it means to, to take up our cross, as we learn what it means to follow Christ, that you would challenge our hearts, that you would encourage our hearts. God, uh, my prayer is that no one will leave here filled with discouragement. Rather, they would be brimming with encouragement because the Spirit of God is applying these great truths, these great realities to our hearts. And so be glorified in this place. I pray that you build up uh, this your people and encourage them uh, with your sovereign grace. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. He had less than 24 hours to be with his wife and his children. I'm pretty sure that the last time he taught on Thursday or Friday that he was unaware. That would be the last time he would stand behind a lectern and teach the word of God. Well, he wasn't planning to die at 58. He was prepared to die at 58. Why? Michael Ove was a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. He believed and all that Jesus accomplished on the cross for him, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The challenge for us is we may not be planning to die today or this week or next week. Some of you are very young. Some of you are not so young. But day by day, day by day, are we prepared to be with Jesus? That's the challenge. Let's pray. If you are here and you've never trusted Christ, would you cry out uh, to Jesus? Lord, I Acknowledge that I am a sinful person. I have not been a, a person of self-denial. I'm a selfish person. I have broken your law. I have sinned against you. But on the basis of your word and your promises, I, I turn from my sin and I trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And now enable me by your grace to be a person of self-denial 
Enable me by your grace to take up my cross and follow you. Enable me by your grace to be a person who is committed to following Jesus Christ. Thank you for forgiving me of all my sins, past, present, and future. Thank you for enrolling me for free into the school of Christ. And so, Lord, I pray that you would encourage this, your people, with these great realities today. Help us as we walk forward in this series over the next few months on biblical discipleship. What an adventure it is set out to be. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. And you are sent.